Hey y'all, I'm Rachel Garbus. And I'm Sam Landis. Welcome to episode three of the Outdown Front Podcast. We are co-founders of the Atlanta LGBTQ Plus History Project and co-hosts of the Outdown South Podcast. Each episode, you'll hear from a Southern LGBTQ Plus history maker in their own words. So the Georgia General Assembly is back in session for the 2023 legislation process, which means you can expect lots of partisan bickering, a lot of gavel banging, and we hope some very inspiring speech making from our favorite lawmakers under the Gold Dome. We thought this would be a good time for you all to hear the story of one of Georgia's first openly gay senators, Senator Kim Jackson, who has been a truly incredible advocate for the state's LGBTQ community. Senator Jackson, who was first elected in 2020 and represents the Stone Mountain area, is the first openly gay person to be elected as a state senator in the state of Georgia. She is also an ordained, ordained Episcopal minister, having served as a chaplain at AUC, Helena University Center, All Saints Episcopal Church, and Church of the Common Ground, all located in Atlanta, Georgia. I first met Senator Jackson when she was a minister at All Saints Episcopal Church in Atlanta and was immediately captivated by her warm energy. When we started this project, I knew she was someone that I wanted to include. The other reason I wanted to include her is to show that we are living history now. Your experiences, your life, is part of LGBTQ history. Oh my God, Sam, I'm so excited. Ken, you set the scene for the oral history interview you did with Kim Jackson? Yes. I met and recorded Senator Jackson's oral history in the Georgia State University Library Special Collections and Archives Department. You and Morna Gerard, one of the lead archivists at GSU, were also there, partially to support me since this was my first time to lead an oral history interview. And partially just out of raw curiosity at how you'd fare. As it turns out, I had nothing to worry about because Senator Jackson is such a wonderful storyteller. She made my job super easy, at least during the interview. During the editing process, it actually made it more challenging because there were so many beautiful stories we wanted to include. I hear you. Kim Jackson is an amazing storyteller. She's such a natural leader, and wow, she's just really doing the work. Like, I feel that if Jesus really did come back, he'd just go right up to Kim And he turned around and he'd say, y'all, this is exactly what I was talking about. Except he probably wouldn't say y'all. Or would he? Or would she? Or would they? Holy moly, please let Jesus come back as a sweet tea drinking, Dolly Parton loving, gender fluid southerner. You heard it here first. Anyways, start us off, Sam. Where does Kim's story begin? We first find Kim in her hometown of Cowpen, South Carolina where she's one of two children with a large extended family that lived locally. Her family was heavily involved in their local Baptist church, where she was part of the choir and felt a call to ministry from an early age. Um, So I grew up in a little town just outside of Calpin, South Carolina, so really small, literally like a one stoplight town. Um, And I have two parents, a mom and a dad, both of whom from really, really large families, so my Dad has nine brothers and sisters. My mom had seven brothers and sisters. Uh, so I have like a ton of aunts and uncles and consequently a ton of cousins. And that's the kind of family that I grew up in. It was just lots and lots of people. I mean, Thanksgiving would be ridiculously insane in terms of how many people were around. Um, and my grandparents lived just down the street from me. So um, when I would get home from school, I would often either walk down to their house um, and hang out with my cousins there, 
or as I got older, my grandfather who had Alzheimer's would actually walk up to our house and I would play the piano for him for hours after school and he would just sing, sing all these hymns. Um, he didn't know who I was, but he knew all the words to the hymns and so it was just really sweet and, and a really beautiful and precious time in my life as a kind of like young 12, 13 adolescent. Um, I grew up in a really faithful, religiously faithful community and um, you know, like one of those places where we went to church whenever the church doors were open. Sometimes my parents opened the church doors, right? And so I remember like very vividly at eight years old, um, feeling this clear sense of call to like wanting to be a pastor. So I, my parents gave me my notebook um, from like when I was in third grade. So I have these compositions and I actually write it out. This is the only reason why I know it is because they let me, they gave it back to me. and. I did this like eight-year-old math of influence. So I asked myself, who in my life has the most influence on me? And it was my pastor, my teachers, and my parents. And then like I wrote out as a third grader, okay, well like parents, ironically, they can only influence like two or three people. Never mind that my grandparents had a thousand children, right? Like. <laughs> To me, because I was one of two, um, they're like, you know, parents can only influence like two or three people. Teachers, again, I'm eight, so I'm like, teachers can only influence like 20 people, because I had no sense of like, teachers have new students every year. <laughs> that was just, so my math was very simple. And then I was like, but pastors can have hundreds and hundreds of people in their congregations. And so, like, having done that, like, eight-year-old math of, of influence, I was just like, I want to be a pastor because I want to have the biggest impact and the biggest influence that I know. And those were, those were the only three choices, right? Like, I didn't know anything about government or any of those. Like, I knew pastors, teachers, and parents. And pastors were the biggest influencers, and so that's where I wanted to go. And I went to my pastor at the time, and I said, hey, you know, like, I want to be a pastor. And he said to me, you know, you can't do that. And um, I was I was a really smart child. And I don't think I said this like as a smart aleck, like I think I really meant this because I, you know, I responded to him, like not now, but when I'm a grown up, right? <laughs> like obviously I don't I don't qualify as a kid at eight, but when I'm a grown up, and, and then he said, No, like girls can't do this, women can't do this. Um, and I believed him because I was eight. And he was my pastor, and, and that's what you believe, right? Um, and so I, I decided then, like, okay, well, the next best thing is to be a teacher. And so from the time that I was eight until I was halfway through college, I thought I was going to be a public school teacher. I mean, I was going to be the quintessential, I did not know this at the time, but, like, I was going to be the quintessential lesbian. I was going to coach basketball and, like, teach social studies. I mean, like, it was going to be, I did not know at the time how lesbian like that was, but that's really, like, that was my goal. Um, and I grew up in a, and I grew up in a family that really, I think, supported that type of dream of going ahead and like giving back to your community as a teacher, right? Like it's an honorable profession. And so um, my parents were quite pleased with that, you know, trajectory. Wow. If only young Kim knew all the things that were in store for her. Right? Kim Jackson went to Furman University in Greenville, South Carolina. While there, she met people who challenged many of the things she'd been taught about who belonged in ministry. 
While she's in college in 2003, an openly gay minister, Jane Robinson, was confirmed as a bishop in the Episcopal Church of the Diocese of New Hampshire, making the Episcopal Church the first mainstream Christian denomination to ordain someone who was openly gay. I, I saw Gene Robinson on TV getting ordained, and he was this, like, out gay man. And um, that, I think, gave me some sense of, like, wait, maybe everything that I've learned is possible, like, it's not true and that this is possible um, because he's doing it and he's clearly a Christian, like, he's a bishop. I don't know. I didn't ask a lot of questions. It just was pretty much in my face there. Um, and also I had a college chaplain who called, kind of pulled me out my freshman year and said, I think you have a call to ministry. And I didn't believe him because, like, I was told girls can't do that. And he actually put me in his car and he drove me around Greenville, South Carolina and introduced me to people who were women who were serving as pastors. Um, so it had nothing to do with my queer identity, right? But it had everything to be about being a woman and a pastor. And so I think combining those things, I'm so grateful that I kind of came of age, right, when Gene Robinson and when it was such a controversy because I had that as a model of like, oh, you can be a Christian and a pastor. You can be a woman and a pastor. So like, maybe I can actually do this. like in this combined body of both being a woman and queer and deeply called to ministry in, in ways that I just, I knew like deep within my soul, um, but I just didn't have a lot of outward expression to kind of follow through. So that was kind of my college experience of, of coming out kind of slowly. I didn't really, really come out until I came to Atlanta because, I mean, Atlanta is the right place to come out, right? But it really, college was the time where I was coming out to myself and exploring how to kind of reconcile those two things or, or these different identities that I had. I started college majoring edu education because I was going to be a teacher, right? Um, I found that degree did not be fulfilling. Um, so I changed to a history major. And there's not a whole lot you can do with a history degree when you graduate from college. <laughs> um, so I knew, I mean, actually, so to be clear, my mom also, like, after serving as a nurse uh, in the community, she started teaching nursing as a professor. And so she had said to my brother and I both, like, college is just to prove to people that you can start something and complete it. It doesn't matter what you major in. So have a major that you enjoy. You're going to have to go to grad school anyway. Or you're going to have to get some type of professional training afterwards anyway. And so history really meant that I had to go to grad school. Um, and so I just applied to Masters of Divinity programs because by that time I was like, oh yeah, I really do feel called to ministry. Um, and I applied to Candler, which is at Emory. Candler was great and it brought me to Atlanta and um, it's where I met like my first queer Christian folks who were also wanting to be pastors. I mean, I used to tell, I remember coming home and telling my mom, like, before I'd even come out to her, I just was telling her in general, like, Candler's got all these gay people who want to be pastors. Um, and she didn't ask questions about that, right? Um, but I was just super in intrigued by that. And um, also, like, I went to my first Pride that summer and literally cried the whole time like I was at the parade it also was pouring rain so I felt like nobody could tell <laughs> but I just cried the whole time because like I'm seeing thousands of people like be happy about being gay 
And again, I'm this little black girl from Calpin, South Carolina, who never met a gay person, let alone like a happy gay person, right? Um, and so it was just, it, it was transformative for me, right? That first year of being in grad school and meeting all these gay folks, going to Pride, like hearing people talk out loud about um, how to reconcile Christian theology with being LGBTQ. I mean, it was just, it was a true like watershed moment for me. So upon graduation and ordination, Kim Jackson, who's now a minister, sets out in search of a job. And while she's hungry to do ministry, she feels called to do something beyond the traditional church and pulpit model. But she doesn't know exactly what that looks like. So while I was at Candler, that's where I learned about really how to do ministry in a way that wasn't just like stale, stagnant church with old people, um, but that you could do ministry, and that's no offense to my fellow colleagues who do that ministry. (laughs) It just wasn't for me, but I learned at Candler a lot about what they call public theology of, um, they use the description of like having a newspaper in one hand and the Bible in the other, and going into the public square because um, conservatives have known this for a long time, but progressives were learning this then that that our Christian tradition has something to say about how we gather together as a body politic and um, and something to say about that that isn't homophobic and patriarchal and damaging to the very fabric of of our nation, right, of our nation. Um, So I learned that at Candler. I saw that model of doing ministry in this kind of way where you, like, are out in the streets with a bullhorn and a collar. Um, and I did that stuff around, I did a lot of that around the death penalty, and there were a lot of Episcopal priests who were part of that work, and so um, that's the kind of priest that I decided that I wanted to be. And so my first call was as a college chaplain at Morehouse Spelman in Clark, Atlanta. Um, That's, I mean, I was 25, working with people who could have been my younger siblings, (laughs) so it was great. Um, I don't know. I remember saying to somebody, like, I can't believe they let me be in charge here. (laughs) But they did. And I I stayed there for six years, and I worked with young people uh, at the AUC around the things that they were passionate about, right? Like, so I helped them organize protests and helped them figure out ways to engage in public theology and, and how to, like, fight for the things that they cared about, right? Like, we... We helped organize cafeteria workers at Morehouse who were being fired in the winter. I guess they were fired in the summertime and then rehired. And so they'd have three months without any pay, three months without anything, right? And so, you know, college students came to me and were like, Mother Kim, this is not right. People are suffering. Like, what can we do about it? And so we helped organize them, right? Like, it was just, it was a great, it was a great six years. It was a great way to kind of start my ministry was being able to be with all these young people who had all this great energy with me. I was a young person with them, right? Um, and doing the stuff that I, I, I think that I'd mainly read about, right? Um, of, I mean, I really felt like, oh, this is how Martin Luther King, right? Like Jesse Jackson, this is the kind of ministry that they were doing in the 60s. And I think we'd lost the way on that. And I felt like I was doing that again um, with these college students. So I spent six years doing that. Um, and then I went 
from there and spent some time at a place called Emmaus House, which is a Episcopal ministry in Peoplestown. Um, Peoplestown is, well, it used to be <laughs> five years ago when I was there. Um, it was it was a place that was extraordinarily poor. It's like before gentrification, right? Um, so it was a bunch of young black kids that were living in poverty. Their reading levels were extraordinarily low. Um, and we had a little chapel there, so I went and served as um, the priest with that community. And then also I ran a freedom school that participates in literacy and literacy development for kids during the summer. And, um, you know, I wanted to be a teacher when I was growing up, right? So it was just like perfect. <laughs> um, I had all these, I had 100 children in a freedom school that I was running. I mean, it's like, <laughs> it's all these dreams come true at one time. And so I went from Emmaus House, where I was working with poor children, to All Saints, which is a bastion of great wealth and some of the wealthiest people in Atlanta who worship there. And then I left there to work at Common Ground with people who are experiencing homelessness. Um, and so it's like extreme poverty. And I have found like my home is my home is at Common Ground, much so more than at All Saints. Um, but I'm grateful for that time that I had in this kind of it's, it's good to see like what traditional church is like, right? And to to meet people who otherwise would never go out on the streets and be with my folks, but because they know me from All Saints, like they come and like help me at common ground, right? So there's this wonderful kind of bridge building, things that have gotten to happen because I got to play in kind of both worlds of great wealth and extreme poverty. Backing up a little bit, it was while at Candler, during her ordination process, that she met the woman who she would later marry, Trina. We wanted to make sure that we shared one of Kim's favorite stories, how she and Trina got married. Yeah, so Trina and I, you know, we fell in love our second year of grad school, or at least I fell in love with her. I, I think she would agree that she fell in love then too. Um, she really kind of walked alongside me through that rocky time with my parents. Um, but we, we decided to get legally married um, in 2014, so before same-sex marriage was legal across the nation. Um, and my rationale for that, like we had kind of had a, like a small commitment, you know, ceremony between the two of us, like and had exchanged rings and all this. But I wanted to get married because I said to her, the day that it's legal in Georgia, I wanted to be like, the moment that our marriage is legal in Georgia, I want our marriage to be legal. I don't want to have to go to a courthouse. Like, I want it to be done. And so we um, we flew to Iowa with another queer clergy couple. They were two black guys. And um, Iowa did same-sex marriages of all the places in the world. I don't know why Iowa, but they did. Um, so we flew in in the middle of April. And... Um, like went to the courthouse. This is actually one of my favorite stories. So we go to the courthouse. There's four of us, right? The guy, Cornell, was going to do our, he was going to officiate for our service, which left Fred to be the witness. But in Iowa, you have to have two witnesses. And obviously, like, you can't witness your own <laughs> marriage. So we're standing on the front, on the courthouse steps in Iowa, in Des Moines, Iowa, and we realize that we need another witness. And so we start asking people, just like random strangers as they're walking past, like, hey, would you stay and witness our wedding? 
And we got no after no after no from like these just random like white people who were passing by, right? Um, and then this black woman walks out of the courthouse and I ask her like, hey, would you be willing to witness our marriage? And she's like, yeah, sure, no problem. And so she stays, and we, it's a really short ceremony. It's sweet, you know, it's out of the Book of Common Prayer, but with my, my wife is Muslim, and so, you know, we try to make it a little more generous in terms of not being so Christian. Um, and Nora signed um, our license. And so when we got home, I was like, you know, I actually did not have this idea. My wife, Trina, who's much more thoughtful than me, she was like, we should send her a thank you note. So we've got her whole name, right? So let's look her up and see if we can find an address for her. And so we, when we look her up, the very first thing that pops up is her mugshot. And I'm just like, this woman who was at court because she'd been in trouble, who had like clearly experienced some problems, in the midst of all of that that was going on with her, she stopped and bore witness to our wedding. And I will forever be grateful for that, right? Like, one of the, one of the people there, like, who had the least amount of privilege said, I'm going to do this for these queer couples, and I'm not going to judge them for being queer. I'm just going to witness their marriage. And so, I'm, like, I love that story because it's just such a, and I feel like it's so fitting for who me and Trina are as well. Like, if we had had to, like, handpick somebody to witness our marriage, that would have been the kind of person we would want to do that, right? Because um, that's who we work with. These days, Kim is best known in Georgia for her tireless advocacy in the Georgia General Assembly, where she serves as a state senator. Elected in 2020, Kim was the first out gay person elected to the state Senate. As a legislator, she's sponsored bipartisan bills to improve the effectiveness of rape kit testing and to add more first responder mental health support services. She has also spoken out against legislation that would harm the LGBTQ community. I've gotten cards from like very seasoned gay white men in particular who I know, I mean, they lived through an HIV and AIDS crisis, right? Like, they've seen a lot of history happen, and they've written me, like, taking the time to write letters to talk about how much they celebrate my victory. Because even though they've lived through all these other things, having a Georgian, right? Like, I think being in the South is particularly right, but having a black woman Georgian who is queer serving in state office was something that they could never imagine, and they are so inspired by it. Um, and so I try to hold that, try to hold that with like honor and to always realize like whenever something, particularly something that's about our community comes up in the Senate, on the Senate floor, like I, I always try to think about, I am speaking to, I'm speaking to the little girl who is at my high school that I grew up in right now, who wrote me and said, it's really hard to be gay in Calpin, South Carolina still. But because you came from here, I know I can grow up and be something worthwhile, right? That's, that's, the, that's the child I'm speaking to when I get in the well and I try to, try to explain to people that 
that we are worthy of rights, that we are not to be feared, that that there's space for us and there needs to be more space for us, right? Like, it's, it's that little girl who I'm talking to. It's those white gay men. I mean, it's the white gay men at All Saints who treated me like a Barack Obama. Like, the, they're the ones. I'm, I'm holding them in my heart whenever I stand up because I do recognize that I represent for so many people so much more than just, just me, right? Like, in my mind, I'm a little black girl from Calvin, South Carolina. But I know for many, many people that I represent what's possible. You know, this year we had an anti-trans bill that came forward that would ban children from being able to play on the same sport that matches their gender. I use all our correct language to just describe that bill. What the bill actually says is that something horrible about sex of the child and natural born, I don't know, it was awful. It's terrible language. Um, but when that bill came up to the floor, um, I knew that I needed to speak against it. And I knew, again, that I knew that there were, there were children who, who needed to hear something said to them that were queer kids and non-binary and gender non-conforming kids. And so I made a calculated choice. Um, if you... In the Senate, you have two two times that you can speak. You can speak in the morning, and it's called a point of personal privilege, where you just get three to five minutes. Nobody asks you questions about it. Like, it's just your time. I mean, you can say random ass shit, too. Like, people use that time to rail against, <laughs> rail against Joe Biden, and other people use it as a time to, like, honor their wife and their anniversary. Like, it runs the gamut, right? Um... People have used it for like a short Bible study. It's wild. So there's the, the point of personal privilege. Or you can debate in the well, right? Like you can, after a bill is presented, you can go up and offer a speech for debate. And then you can re receive questions. And I made the calculated decision that, A, like whether or not trans people exist and trans children exist is not up for debate. That I wasn't interested in debating that. Um, and so I, I made a choice to do a point of personal privilege. And I used that space to talk to queer kids. And, um, you know, I, I, I shared with them my own story. I played team handball for the United States national team. Um, it was one of the greatest experiences of my life, right? Like I put on a USA team jersey and... Um, represented our country, and I, I talked about how I was so proud to represent our country, but deeply ashamed of who I was as a queer person. Because when I was playing sports at that time, everybody said that gay people couldn't be trusted, right? That gay women shouldn't be in the same locker room with gay women. I mean, with straight women, and there was all these accusations that, like, if we were playing sports, if gay women were playing sports with women, that they would, like, be groping them and filling them up, and there was just, like, all of this stigma. And I know for a fact today that a number of the women on my handball team, that we were also queer, but none of us ever said anything to each other about it because it was just because we were deemed unsafe and unfit to be on a team with other people of our same gender. 
And so I, I shared a piece of that story from the well. Um, and I said, you know, they were wrong about us then when they said that we couldn't play on the same team with straight girls. And they're wrong about you all now when they say that you can't play on the same team that represents your gender. Um, and, I, you know, that, that moment for me was, it's like, oh, this is why I'm here. Because only I can give that speech. Of all the senators in that room, nobody else can give that speech. And, and then I, I took the opportunity and I like looked in the camera and I said, I want you all to know, I want all girl athletes, all non-conforming, non-binary, um, I want you to know that you are loved by God. And, and then I sat down because nobody else was ever gonna say that to them. And the debate that they were gonna hear certainly was not gonna acknowledge that adults could get this wrong and it certainly wasn't going to acknowledge that they were created by God and loved by God just as they are. And so that's what I had to offer. And I think that's what I think that's what my job is to do. Kim and Trina currently live on a farm in Stone Mountain, Georgia. She plans to continue serving as a state senator and looks forward to continuing to grow as a legislator and community leader. She also still serves as a minister at the Church of the Common Ground, where she serves the unhoused community. In our current moment in time, when despite the progress we have made, anti-LGBTQ and anti-trans legislation continues to pop up across the country, especially in the South, we need people like Senator Jackson to, in places of power to speak up against the homophobia and transphobia. I think it is especially powerful because so often the push behind anti-LGBTQ plus legislation comes from conservative Christian ideology. And here we have an ordained minister challenging that idea that there's only that way to be a person of Christian faith. It was so nice revisiting Kim's story with you, Sam. Yeah, it moves me every time I listen to it. Yeah, she's a really incredible person. Um, I also, separate to my job here, I cover the legislature as a journalist, so I spend a lot of time there. And some of what happens there can be really ugly. These days there's more racial, gender, and religious diversity in the legislative body than there ever has been before, but it's still really overwhelmingly white and male. And a lot of the lawmaking reflects that power imbalance. Anti-trans legislation, like the bill Kim mentioned, um, they come about because most lawmakers have never actually met a trans person let alone a little trans girl who just wants to plan her school's soccer team. But things really are changing. People like him bring their personal experiences into the legislative chamber, and that changes the kind of bills they sponsor and the impact they have on their fellow lawmakers. So it can be disheartening to see the kind of damaging legislation that's happening in red states across the country, but it's really people like Kim who are fighting back and making space under the gold dome for people who've never had one before. And I think it's really inspiring to be able to share her story with you all. We hope you've enjoyed listening to a bit about Kim Jackson. 
and we hope that you'll join us for the rest of the season as we hear from our other honored subjects who have made an impact on the Atlanta LGBTQ community. If you've enjoyed this podcast and you believe in preserving and sharing Southern LGBTQ history, we invite you to support the Out Down South podcast and the rest of the work we are doing with the Atlanta LGBTQ History Project by going to our website at Atlanta LGBTQ History Project.org and clicking the donate button. We're so grateful for the partners of the podcast, WUSIMAG, the LGBTQ Institute at the National Center for Civil and Human Rights, and the Special Collections and Archives at Georgia State University Library, where all the oral histories from this project will be archived. Our Out Down South exhibit is currently up at the National Center for Civil and Human Rights. You can learn more about that exhibit by visiting atlantalgbtqhistoryproject.org slash exhibit. The Out Down South podcast is made possible by the hard work of an amazing team of LGBTQ plus creators. Co-founders of the project, John Dean and Rachel Ward, and our amazing interns, Alyssa Zhang, Alex Campo, and Hunter Buhai. If you enjoyed this podcast, please like, subscribe, and rate the podcast on iTunes, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. This helps other queer history lovers find us. If you didn't like it, don't worry about it. You can find all our episodes and more information about the project on our website at Atlanta LGBTQ Plus History Project. Dot org. Until next time. Bye, y'all.